Here with me, I have Gabrielle Davis and Dr. Cheryl Ostriker. Did I say your name right? A Striker. Okay. Yeah. I, I always try and every time I fail. Sure. So I'm Cheryl. I'm head of special collections and archives at Boise State University in the library. And I'm here kind of to talk about some of the things we have documented in our collections and the history, people, organizations, activities, etc. that give an overview for the past 30-ish, 40-ish years. Uh, my name is Gabriella. I'm sorry, Cheryl, was your mouth opened again? Were you about to say no. something else? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, Zoom. <laughs> my name is, is Gabrielle Davis. Uh, most people call me Gabby. I am a respiratory therapist. Is my full-time paid job here. Um, I also run Youth Alliance for Diversity, which is a local, the oldest and longest running LGBT youth group um, in Idaho, um, in, in Boise. It's a, and it meets from once a week for, for two hours for kids 12 to 20. It's not meeting right now. Um, I am not from um, Idaho. I've been here four long years. Um, so when this topic came up, and the three of us were just talking about this too as well, and Cheryl and I have talked about it previous, it's interesting because the history I know about in Idaho compared to the history I know about from the states I've lived in, which have been Michigan, Illinois, are, are, are different. And so more of my Idaho history is what I've learned for from uh, queer elders and the youth that's been living here um, all of their lives. Yeah, I'm also married. I like long walks on the beach. <laughs> um, I came to Idaho because I hate awkward silence, if you can tell, but I, I came to Idaho because my wife took a job here. So that's why I'm here. And also, I guess I should do a little background about myself, since after all these conversations, I have yet to talk about myself. Um, I'm also from D.C., and I've also lived here for four years, just like Gabrielle. So we have kind of similar backgrounds with learning the history from people that have been here rather than experiencing some of it firsthand. And I should add to that too, because I've lived here for eight years. And so I've lived in several other states in various regions of the country. And I've learned it just from working with our collections, pe questions people ask, uh, being involved in different areas and just wanting to know what it's all about. Uh, so uh, one of the things that I do is work to document the history of Boise, the region, area, Boise State University, and more or less Idaho as well. And within that, it's we really try to find collections that are representative and, rep and have different perspectives, views, and all kinds of things. So for our LGBTQ collections, we have a lot of newspapers and collections from people, organizations about early uh, Boise Gay Pride Parades and Pride Fest. We have, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, activists who are in there, uh, politicians, places like the Community Center, organizations like your family, friends, and neighbors, and all kinds of things. And I, I must give credit to my predecessor, Alan Verda, who started all of these collecting, uh, collecting these groups of records, because 
he made great strides and I've tried to continue that to make sure that anyone who's interested <clears throat> can be informed about uh, our history. And of course, anyone, not at the moment, unfortunately, but in under normal circumstances, anyone can come in and look at our collections. And you know what we do too is try to uh, use them in coursework and present it to students so that people who haven't lived here for a long time or are unfamiliar can do that. So we have also some information about organizations and student groups at Boise State throughout history and it just kind of goes on and on and on. And I think, you know, I've just learned so much and I'm still learning. Anytime I look at a collection, a paper, a report, talk to somebody, I learn more. And that's one of the things that I like. We have, and we have a lot from like the late 80s into the 90s and then some past that too. But when the groups were really becoming active and you know, and it go it dates back further than that. But you know, I I always kind of go back to when the first Boise Pride Parade in 1989 and Pride Fest in 1990, and how all of that started making everything more visible and engaging people. We have a lot of information about Proposition One, which was the anti-gay legislation that uh, the Idaho Citizens Alliance. Uh, is that right? Idaho Citizens Alliance presented in, I believe it started in 94. Uh, it went on for a couple of years and how both sides, you know, reacted, why they did it, who did it, who was involved, how it was stopped and, and so forth, as well as just, you know, things like the Elm Awards and it just kind of goes on and on and on. And there's a lot of rich history that reflects just uh, what goes on in Boise and what Boise is trying to be um, as a city, as a community and, and everything. One of our really great collections is of oral histories that a former faculty, Riley Caldwell O'Keefe uh, did in a class. She had her students interview someone in Idaho, it could be anyone in Idaho, uh, uh, about their experiences um, as part of the LGBTQ community. And, you know, there's good things. There's things talking about the founding of the balcony and the great people that they met, but there's not great things about the harassment and uh, anti-gay sentiments that they experienced and all kinds of things. And, you know, being um, left out of their families because of of who they were and all kinds of things. And so it's, you know, it's the kind of history that has some really great triumphs from, but also some really awful tragedies. And, you know, that's, it's, but it, it definitely reflects, uh, you know, there's a lot that, a lot of progress that has been made. There's of course still more to do, but there, you know, when working with students, especially in a few years ago when, um, gay marriage was finally legalized, I would bring some of these things out to talk about, here's how we got to where we are today. It's not about, this didn't just happen. You know, there's a lot of history that goes into it and a lot of work from so many people that helped contribute to, to, all, to these triumphs. And um, yeah, that's kind of the nutshell version. And I can, I'll kind of piggyback on some of the things that Cheryl said. 
in, in complete transparency, I had no idea about this project that Cheryl was doing until Cheryl and I had a conversation. Um, and it's true that not only do I've taught a class at Boise State, but I live on a Boise State campus too. So I've never heard of it until Cheryl and I met. Um, and I think the importance of the project Cheryl is mentioning for me as a queer person is a reminder that history can repeat itself. Um, or, and it is just like when, you know, when we think about American history and the things that are happening with race right now, these are things that have happened already that are rehappening or have, are continuing to happening, although most of America has forgotten it happened. Um, so I, in that aspect, I think that the, the oral histories and, um, you know, what Boise State has done by collecting all these uh, papers and artifacts. I don't know, Cheryl, if you mentioned some of the artifacts that, that you know, they've collected from different marches and all the work has been done is, is more important, I think, for well-meaning, cisgender, heterosexual people for coming here as a queer person. It was more important for me to go talk to these people because they are still alive and in Boise. Um, it's also important to me to use the privilege I have to include them when we're talking about them or talking about work they've participated in um, and work that needs to be done and work that's happening right now. So, you know, the people that when we talk about, you know, uh, queer history in Idaho, it's important to know that a lot of those main players and activists and advocates that did a lot of this work are still alive, living right here in Idaho. Um, the youth group I work for or I volunteer with was ran by the same person since 1994. I've got to hope I got that right. You know, I'm gonna go with 1999 because if I get this date wrong, he hears this. And it's 1999 and the, the youth group was initially called Family, Friends and Neighbor, like Cheryl mentioned. And it didn't start as a youth group. It started with youth wanting to help with what was going on with Proposition 1. And then once that was over, they didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't have anything else to do. And so how, that's how the youth group came from, from kids wanting to, or youth wanting to be together and make change. And that was turned to, into something else. But, you know, the, the youth group living with within a project of TCC has followed TCC and all their physical moves and has provided safe a safe space for queer and trans people across Idaho. We've had people drive from Oregon. Uh, we've had parents bring their kids from hours away just for two hours and then they go back to whatever rural city they came from in Idaho. So I, I think it's important that we know this history. I think it's important that uh, cisgender heterosexual people use this information to do some work themselves instead of relying on queer people to do emotional labor for them for free. And I also think, I think it's a good uh, thing for youth to have when we start doing it, because these are, what we're talking about now will be uh, projects in school for people. Um, some of my mentees has did projects about LGBT history in Idaho. So I, I think it's, it's good we, that we have that, but we also still have active members, both older and younger, still out doing this work, still pushing towards these things. And this history that we're, we're talking about, again, it's happening in currently. Um, and a prime example is what's happening with the, the law that was passed to 
ban trans women from playing sports. Um, so it, it's important to know where some of those things came from, the damage that was done and will be will be done again. So there's that. Well, yeah, and even to add to that, because you know what we think of as current right now is history in the future. You know, so history never ends. It just you just keep adding to it, and you know that's that's part of it too. Anyone who participates is part of history and is making it happen. Any you know anything that anyone does for any of it, it's it's part of history. And you know, one of the questions I get as an archivist over the years is, oh, but I'm not famous. No one is gonna be interested in what I did. And that is so not true. It's the people on the ground and out there and working tirelessly. And that's what we have in some of our collections. Uh, and I see there's a couple of questions. Can I go ahead and answer? Oh, go the, for it. Okay. Uh, to my knowledge, and if anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the first gay bar in Boise was the balcony. And I don't know what year it was founded, but I'd be happy to <laughs> figure that out and, and get back to you. And then, uh, yes, there was a newspaper put out by the community center that has gone through several names. And I think it was at first just called the community center or the community paper. I, I would have to double check, but it started back probably in late eighties, early nineties, mm -hmm. uh, I believe. And so, and we have, I don't know that we have all of them, but we have a lot of them. And it is really interesting to look back at those to see here's what the issues that they were dealing with at that time has changed, what hasn't changed and, uh, and to look at all that it's but you know i i always think of archives as preservers of the past present and future because you know what we do never ends and it's always important to make sure that we can keep those records for future generations and then i actually yeah. have a question um <clears throat> so idaho at least i would argue is a pretty isolated state geographically I mean, the population is dispersed over a wide area. And Boise is considered by some to be one of the most isolated cities geographically as well. So how much do you think Idaho's isolation as a state played into the LGBTQ history that played out in Boise and across the state? I think a lot. And I think that that extends to just about any topic you can possibly imagine. And I've lived in... Uh, I've lived in major cities, I've lived in suburbs, I've lived in, you know, smaller cities in a wide variety of places, and it really, there is somewhat of a disconnect, and it's both that sometimes people don't pay attention to Idaho, and is, you know, Idaho is often forgotten in the narratives of, of any history, except for maybe, you know, random moments, uh, and I think that makes it harder for Idahoans to find those resources and find out that history. And, you know, except for the Boise area, everyone is so spread out. So there's, there's that with these oral histories, the student, some of the students interviewed people that lived in other towns. And so comparing their experiences to people in Boise is really interesting because it's very different. And yeah, I think it, it plays into that. But now, as we become more connected through 
internet, social media, et cetera, there's a lot more opportunities to overcome that too. I think that uh, being an isolated city uh, plays into, I think lack of funding for resources uh, plays a big part into it because again, the states I lived in weren't rural, uh, the cities I lived in weren't rural in the state, but we had a lot of funding that came from state and local government. Idaho is not a very inclusive state to provide that funding. I think the other news that comes along with Idaho, and again, this is as an outsider, because I, to be honest, I didn't find I, I, Idaho was a state until I had to move here. I'm like, where is, what state is Idaho in when I was moving here? I think that, you know, the, a lot of things you hear about, the first thing you hear about Idaho, if you, if you Google it, depending on where you Google from, because that matters, is you hear about the Aryan Nation. Um, so, you know, just knowing that there's type hate groups, it doesn't matter what type, is another uh, reason to not to feel safe to uh, live authentically. So I think there are a lot of queer people out looking for each other, and it proves it to see how many people I have at the youth group from different air, rural areas of Idaho, or people that get to come to events like Pride and the Prom and all these other things that pay for hotel rooms to do that, that would likely do it in their own city if there was an ability to do it, if there was a physical space that safety could be guaranteed, they would participate. And I'm sorry, as I'm looking at the chat, I see that I have been corrected. And so Gwen, thank you. And please thank Dean for me that Shucky's Tavern opened in 75 and was the first gay bar in Boise. And I did, I have heard about Emeralds and I don't know when that one opened and I know it closed several years ago. Um, and I don't know about the wizard that that's a new one for me. So I have to go look that up. Um, but yeah, thank you. Cause you know, this is, this is part of it is that, you know, none of us know everything about it and it's, I'm, you know, we're always learning. Uh, to answer Tracy's question about uh, where to go to read more about LGBTQ history in Idaho, that's one of the things that's kind of unfortunate is I don't think there is a lot of scholarship that really does that. There's the book Voice of Boise, which is about the so-called homosexuality scandal in 1955, where uh, gay men were interviewed arrested, persecuted for having relations with other men. And this was back in the context of when people believed homosexuality was a mental illness. And, you know, it was all men too, it, and everything. And that book came out in the 60s. And there, Boise did get some notoriety from that uh, incident in the 50s. And it, it had made some national news but it was also reflective of what was going on in a lot of cities at the time. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, it because it was an underground culture and lifestyle, that, you know, people- that's very, very common in a lot of states. I think a lot longer in Idaho because of the history of the state. Also, even now is a lot of, you know, people living unauthentically, again, because physical safety and, you know, the ability to um, have access to basic needs uh, are a higher priority than, than living authentically. Another, if you want resources about 
history specifically or just things about the LGBT community. The community center has a bookstore, not a bookstore, a library. Um, and they have all the books are either about queer people or written by queer people. And not only that, there is one of the, oh, he's gonna hear, I'm gonna say elder. He's gonna hate that. But there is a person that has been doing this work in Idaho since the 80s, who is there every Saturday between 10 to 12 if you ever have, wanna have a conversation. So any of my questions about history, that was the person I went to to learn things and to find resources. Um, his name is Javier Smith. And he's a, he's a wealth of knowledge about Idaho history. Yeah, and I think it, I, to accentuate one of the things you said, it is, it's talking to people too, because, you know, you can only learn so much from books, but it's learning from directly from people or from records or whatever way that you actually get the fuller experience um, and potentially. And out. Yeah. There are people willing to have these conversations, not only people from history and there are people currently out doing this work um trying to help people learn uh, there are there are folks for that there are people that can be compensated because oftentimes queer people are asked to talk about their experiences for free or to help educate uh people on how not to be homophobic or transphobic for free and the expectation is that since it's bad we should want to do it for free when emotional labor is something, it's just like money. You only can spend it if you got it. So there are people in the community doing this work. Um, yeah, I'm not a person that's starstruck. Like I've you know, met famous people and I don't have a reaction, but the people I've met here that have been here to meet somebody who was an activist and to have coffee with them and just have a conversation and I was new when this first started happening. I just reached out like, hey, can't, let's chat. And they were happy about it to be acknowledged and to be able to share their story and to have somebody listen, uh, listen to understand versus listening to respond is a big deal can, and can have a positive impact on you and the person you're talking to. And Gabrielle, do you actually mind talking more about the community center, um, such as like where it is and then also what services are available at the community center? Well, right now, no services because yeah. of COVID, <laughs> Don COVID. But yeah. the community center is, is at 1088 Orchard. It's in Boise. And um, it hosts a lot of different groups, um, predominantly queer, pertaining to queer people or queer well-being. Um, they have a resource center. So a lot of people come in to find resources for counseling. Um, we only have a select few uh, counselors. We put up counselors or mental health clinicians, and those counselors have been uh, suggested by people who've used them versus the counselors suggesting themselves, like I'm affirming. So that's one place. They, we have a food pantry. They just expanded that. Um, so if people who are, are in need can go there and, and get food items when we have um, food. The youth group meets there. Uh, or a number of different groups can meet there, but it's open to the community um, for different events. The, the website has a public calendar, so you can use it that way. The community center is all ran on donations. We don't get any funding at all from the government. So we stay open month, by, month to month with donations uh, for, from the, the community. The libraries is a big thing. All the books have been donated. Sometimes there are giveaways when we get double, like double copies, they'll give away some of the books there. Um, and it's all 
volunteer ran. The, it's all there's no pay employees. Everything is is based on volunteers. And they have a ch MCC. Uh, they have an inclusive church that's ran outside uh, ran at TCC. Uh, it's Metropolitan Community Church, I believe. Somebody can correct me in the comments if if you like, um, because I've always called it MCC. And they're a very inclusive group too. So they have services on Sundays and on holidays. They, you know, provide meals for the community. Um, yeah. It's very hard to sum up the community center because it changes as the community needs it to change. So. No, and I think that's definitely a great resource that Boise has. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just nice to hear that there's so many different services available there. Um, mm -hmm. We have another question that just came in. So it's geared towards Cheryl. Given Idaho's um, recent stance towards various issues, have you had any pushback with your oral history project or collecting any materials for like minority groups or other um, groups similar that have been marginalized? Uh not exactly like no i think you know it's not everyone knows what we have so they don't know mm -hmm. to push back on it however the oral histories have been publicly available online for i was going to look this up four years maybe and the and everyone who participated knew they were going to be online you know the signed agreements and everything but unfortunately some of those people experienced harassment because of that so we had to redact the names of some of the people and because you know our goal is not to encourage any of that our our goal is to help people learn and educate and there are some unfortunate experiences and i i, I can't speak to all the details but i know other things have happened across campus as well and and of course in the community too and that but it's no one has come out and said you can't collect anything like that and we you know we we do try to this is what archives in general try to do in a lot of places is collect the voices of underrepresented groups because for so many centuries really it was about dead white men as we affectionately call people and you know women Blacks, LGBTQ, Latino, Asian, and name any group, and you know, Jewish, or along religion, race, ethnicity, anything, and a lot, you know, all these marginalized groups. It's it's very important to recognize their voices and preserve it because everyone is part of the conversation and needs to be involved in that and deserves to have their history documented permanently, forever. Um, you know, we have a large collection about our Japanese internment camp at Minidoka, and, you know, we use that and talk about the racism that occurred because of that. And, you know, so it goes on and on. And all of these are so interconnected because really it's all about human rights. And that's, um, that's that. But yeah, I... That's that intersectionality piece that mm -hmm. we, we tend as humans leave out the the conversation you know when we talked about like all of the clubs and the balcony history of the balcony 
and how monumental it was when we because we had the balcony and have the balcony and all those things you know what that isn't the that is the opinion of the majority but when you are somebody with intersecting identity so for me i'm obviously a, a black person can't take that off at night can't hide it um and i'm a queer person so i could go to the balcony and feel affirmed in my queer identity but may experience racism because again intersecting marginalized identities you know that that's how it how it is or uh similar things happen with you know another example i can use is being a black queer person and going to a, a black church here which is you know it's only a couple i could be affirmed in my blackness but will i be shown for being queer so we have all these things just like you said are, are inter are interconnected based on human rights and and judgment and ignorance um willful willful ignorance specifically that that come into play when we talk about these different um groups of people and yeah to add to that too you know the history it does repeat itself um and that's something that we want to you know the more people learn are educated are aware of that history the less likely we hope yeah. is you know it is repeated and that's a good i mean that that thought is good and we know that the work involved and in it can't only be with queer people we know that you know the work involved can't only be with um with black people or any marginalized group that it takes the the work of of everyone to help um and we do that by you know participating in allyship And then are there any Idaho um, women whose experiences have been recorded and documented that are predominant within the history of Idaho? Uh, uh, some of the oral histories that I mentioned, there are some women that are in there. And, you know, that's one thing that I, you know, when you look at the collections we have at Boise State, it's predominantly white and I've never done the percentages. I've been kind of interested in this of like male, female and all the different kinds of things that we could analyze them at as, uh, but I, you know, definitely have been trying to bring more female voices into our collections. And, you know, one collection that we have that I think, um, is uh, you know one of the more recent lgbtq collections we've acquired although we've had it for a while is uh, nicola favor so the first openly gay idaho legislator and you know and she's not done working either so we'll get more and you know some of that and so it's you know it's also interesting because part of it is what work she did before that led into how she did her work with environmental activism, LGBTQ issues and all kinds of things. And so, and then you, you know, you take her and others and you place them within the context. We have a few other female politicians. So what did they do in previous generations and how did it change? You know, so it's, it's always good to look at that, but you know, there's just a lot of voices that are still missing that, you know, we do what we can and we try, but, uh, you know, it kind of never ends. Mm -hmm. And then do the other universities also have archives or collections 
with a focus on the LGBTQ communities, or is it mainly focused within Boise as the capital? That's a good question, and I actually don't know the answer. Uh, I think I'd be happy to find out, um, but I, I am not sure. One thing that archives do is we try to put at least information about our collections on websites and everything, so there's ways you could possibly look. It, I also am not quite sure what the Idaho State Archives might have and other places, you know, and this is one of the things that archives do too is that there's a lot of hidden history in other collections. And so we have some that are absolutely your family, friends, and neighbors, Nicole, Community Center, all of these that are clearly about LGBTQ issues. But then you have other collections that might have some of that in there, but unless we highlight it and make it well known, uh, you know, it's hard, it's sometimes hard to find that. And, you know, we have, <clears throat> A lot of politicians papers and so depending on what years those covered there might be some things about legislation in there and you know so and that's one of the things that we're trying to do too is uncover those those things that are hidden so that we can bring them and then actually you know uh, make them more usable and accessible uh, but it also takes a lot of work mm -hmm. I'm happy that's your job Cheryl and not mine <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, none of it sounds it. fun for me. I know it is. <laughs> it takes a lot, but it's it's a lot of fun. And you know, for me, it's because I, I one of my favorite things about being an archivist is that I learn something every day. You know, mm -hmm. whether I'm looking at a new collection, someone asks a question, whatever it might be, and and that is just invaluable to me. And then another thing for the participants who are curious, um, we have an attendee that recommended the Latak County Historical Society. Mm -hmm. um, they might have an oral history collection or just checking in with your local county historical societies. Mm -hmm. um, they might have more specific records or histories for whatever county you're interested in. I, if I can add to that, I know uh, University of Idaho has a bunch of Valleta County oral histories that has amazing search capabilities and across all kinds of topics. It's a really fantastic collection. I, I use it as a model. So. <laughs> and then one thing that I'm personally really curious in, so there's a little selfish question, but what would you say would be like the, ha the hallmark moments in LGBTQ history within Boise for both of you since history is experienced depending on the person. Mm. Hallmark usually denotes something good. <laughs> <laughs> or call out moments, I should say that. Um, I would say the anti-trans athlete bill that was just passed a lot of people queer folks are pretty upset specifically trans folks because there's a lot of discrimination within the lgbt community against uh trans folks it was pretty disheartening but my initial reaction was not shock it was not shock and i think that oh i had some anger and i my anger was yes we we know the bill was created to intentionally harm trans people. It's very clear why the bill was made. Um, however, 
nobody looked at the other impacts, which is interesting because both Idaho government, U.S. government, seem to be pro-economics versus people right now. And as we see in the recent weeks, the things that has come from passing that bill. So, you know, the money that comes into Idaho for sports is astronomical. And so while there, you know, there's things from, a, from the government about, you know, Boise State participating in diversity and inclusion things and initiatives and states shouldn't be paying that, blah, 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 blah. But big organizations like the NCAA has rules involving inclusion and equity. If they are not allowing athletes to come here or to have uh, to play here, whatever comes of this, yes, the schools are losing out on money and the athletes are losing out on opportunities, but so are the small businesses that benefit from all these people coming in. That, and, and people coming in from within Idaho, coming to these games at um, ISU and Boise State and all these things, so we're losing out economically as well. Furthermore, it what bothered me is that the likelihood that the people that voted read the actual bill is slim, that read through all the things. Because the, the trans athlete bill will likely harm more cisgender girls than trans girls. And that's because kids can be catty. So one of the things in the bill stated that um, if somebody was accused of being trans or another word that didn't go there, because the language was also pretty, pretty off. Accuse somebody of being trans or they were found to be trans, they had to have a physical exam. Now, if let's say Doug and I are both young ladies and we play basketball together and we're in 10th grade, I was a horrible child. Kids are cruel. So what happened if I accused Doug of being a trans girl? Does Doug now have to get a physical exam to look at their genitalia to determine that. And I might know that Doug isn't a trans girl, but because I'm petty, because I'm a child, that might be the case. So it's, it's likely to hurt more cisgender girls than trans girls attempting to play sports. So I, I think it was really sad to know that nobody read, you know, that's the first thing I'm like, so nobody's reading bills in entirety. And for Idaho to be a such a state focused on um, economics and ability for uh, Idahoans to make money and prosper financially, the amount of money they're losing just from sports now. And now uh, people with state funded travel from California, Idaho is banned, they won't pay. So, you know, I know Idaho doesn't like Californians. It seems to be the thing. Cause first thing they ask me like, where are you from? <laughs> you know, um, so yes, less Californians will be coming, well, you know, will be, be coming here for work, which again, where Idaho was likely benefiting from that work. So it's no travel. They've banned state travel from California to come here. So it's interesting to see what other states do that too. So we're losing economically in order to, to, to hurt the few trans people that want to play sports. Yeah, I... I know, I think that's, that's the thing is that there's, from what I know about our history going back, it's that there's so many moments, good and bad, but they all build on each other and relate to each other that it's hard to pick. One singular. Only it's just one, you know, because 
it's, you know, what Pride Fest started as was sort of this, you know, small gathering where it wasn't, it was sort of public, but not quite public. And it was groups, a group of people kind of, they had been getting, before the festival kind of started, they had been getting together and meeting and stuff before that anyway. And then, you know, made it more public and which was great. And then that led into the, uh, you know, things like proposition one, because suddenly, you know, if you keep it hidden, then, you know, no one cares quite as much sometimes because it's not visible, but then suddenly everything was more visible. So then all this legislation started happening and it wasn't just in Idaho, like proposition one that was happening, you know, across the country in um, several States. And you know, that was defeated. And then it led into, we're going to work towards this. And then, you know, so it's like always forward and then a little bit back, you know, hopefully keeping moving, but it's all so related. It's hard to take as a historian, it's hard to take just one part and, and um, think about that. But I think, yeah, with that bill, I just, you know, with things like, uh, Gay, you know, gay marriage being legalized, and then and the recent Supreme Court decision <clears throat> with uh, um, including uh, rights for the LGBTQ com uh, community in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. You know, and then how is that going to fit in? How is that going to affect it? You know, going forward. And so it's all, yeah. But I think, you know, we just keep working. Yeah, and I I fully agree with that as well. It, it it is hard to isolate one moment, especially with a lot of the recent legislation that has been passed both on a state level but also at the federal level. Um, do you mind talking more about the Boise Boys? Because I've actually never heard of that. So sure, it was um, <clears throat> so. It was basically, there, there are a lot of factors in this and there were, and this was going on across the country too in the fifties. And depending on the perspective you look at it, you know, some people say that they were going after like um, this gay billionaire to try to get, you know, you can't be part of this elite club as you know, we're and everything. But others have also argued it was part of Cold War politics because part of the Cold War and was presenting, if you think of the 1950s, it's the white picket fence, the two cars living in the suburbs, you know, mm -hmm. the nuclear family. And that was, and part of that was, I mean, part of it was just a lot of people were like that, but part of it was this is what the U.S. wanted to present to the world as we are this amazing and perfect kind of place. And so anything that didn't fit within that ideal was considered, you know, bad, wrong, you know, thinking of, you know, all those uh, Hollywood people that were accused of communism and excommunicated from uh, the industry. And, and so you know, this was one of those things, but it was also, again, when homosexuality was considered a mental illness and thought it was bad. Uh, people were accused of having relations with underage boys. And so, and it was all about men, you know, so the women weren't part of this, at least that I know of. Um, and people were interviewed 
some people were arrested, some got prison sentences. If you go to the old pen, they have some information too about some of those prisoners. But you know, it was it was conduct like lewd behavior and and those kinds of things. And it was it made national news at the time and lasted a couple of years by the time they did that. They interviewed, I guess, close to fifteen hundred people and you know and things that I've read too, it's like, it's kind of murky about how it really got started and how it really ended. And it was, you know, and um, it's, uh, it was kind of, you know, and I do think that while there were people who, you know, wanted to put a stop to this, you know, untowards behavior, it was also an embarrassment for Boise. You know, people don't really, and that that's one of, that's where some of the hidden, the history gets hidden too, is that, People don't want to talk about it because they're embarrassed or ashamed. And some of it is that, you know, or that it was just too traumatic too. You know, there's, there's all those different things. So it's kind of this um, just weird event and it was pretty isolated. Like, okay. I don't know if any, you know, it, it lasted these couple of years in the fifties. And then I don't know if anything else like that happened after or not. Um, and it still pops up in history books and stuff here and there too. Uh, and if I can answer the question about uh, Boys of Boise mentions any people by name, I actually don't know if any of those people went on to write anything. I'm, I'm not positive. Um, it, I'd have to look, that, that's a really interesting question and I can't say, I, all I can say is that there, to my knowledge, there are no, not a lot of records about it. You know, mostly what, what occurred in the Idaho, or was published in the Idaho Statesman. And, okay. you know, I'm sure that there's some legal documents out there, but there's not a lot else about it. So it's still kind of a unclear, all the, all the different facets of it. But, yeah, yeah. And then where do both of you see um, living in Idaho 10 years from now and like being queer? What do you see life like? Uh, you know, well, let me just say, it. I'll preface this by my intention is not to be in Idaho in 10 years living because of safety, uh, because of the safety factor now and, you know, the wait period in between. I do, I am thankful for Generation Z right now because they are doing work, the most work to in, for inclusion and equity right now. It's not people my age, it's not people before me, it's, it's not boomers at all. But the, the young folks that's doing this work right now, I think they have the, the passion and the collective power to make change. So I think at some point, hopefully in my, uh, in my lifetime, that a, a Boise will, will be a, a safer place to live as a queer person. For me, I, I think that a lot of queer people do feel safe here, and, and I don't want that to be taken lightly, but for me to be a queer person and have another marginalized identity, I don't feel it's a safe place uh, to live. Um, but eventually, I think, you know, they said Boise is one of the, um, something about uh, most people are moving here. I can't remember. Yeah, uh, the most city most livable city and I'm wondering who the people were that they polling. I bet it was cisgender straight white people um, that they polled for that. 
livable, you know, the cost of living is low, but you, you don't have some of the services like transit and things like that that you need to, to, to get around. Um, but until it's one of the most inclusive cities or equitable cities to live in, I don't think it would be the safest place for queer people to be, unless you have money. Money is, a, is always the guiding principle when it comes to, to safety. Yeah. What I hope for, because I, of course, wish I could make that kind of prediction, is that as different generations grow up, they don't notice all of the differences in the same way, and that it um, it's, uh, I don't know how to, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to explain it, but you know, it's like, so, you know, there will be a generation who will never know that gay marriage was outlawed. Mm -hmm. And so there's different kinds of things as more as, and like with the youth, I think that because, you know, a lot of reactions to it is fear and it's fear of the unknown and not understanding and not being aware of whatever it might be. And so I think as it's more in the, as, it, as it's just, discussed more and everything and that hopefully some of that can be overcome uh you know it will always be it will never completely go away because uh, that's just not unfortunately how the world works but i think it'll be interesting and i think too that if boise's population continues to grow at the rate that it is which is you know i don't know if it's slowed down now since uh um covid but you know, bigger cities have more of those resources. And so if Boise continues to grow, hopefully those kinds of resources and communities, groups, support and everything would also grow. I guess that's kind of what I hope for. I think it's also important that, you know, in 10 years, we have a, the generations that I was just speaking um, about, they have lived through so many different types of trauma right now, and they're fired up. You know, it's a lot of people that are just fired up because they just realized that racism never left right now since the, you know, the recent murders. But these people have been traumatized their entire life. They went through all these school shootings recently. Of course, there were more before that. But the school shootings, war, H1N1, COVID, marriage, uh, you know, the same gender marriage being passed. Like all these things and seeing all these things play out is so many parts of history that they're alive during. My generation wasn't like that. Were there things? Absolutely. But so they live in traumatized. Their life is, they've lived through so many different types of trauma. They're all, they're ready. They're ready. Like, what is the next thing? Let's go. So I, I feel energized from them. Um, you know, even in Idaho, we have lots of, queer community organizer that aren't just organizing for the queer community. Um, Nisha Newton has done so much for the queer community and they just recently graduated college with an undergraduate. So these are young folks that's doing this work, doing this work free, you know, unfortunately free, that are already and they're getting other young folks to, to join. You know, so I, I think the, you know, young people um, are, are helping the, the generations before them and will make the generations after them even better than before.
kind of um, building off of that, do you think the marketing standpoint that Boise has uh, as the um, best place to live or the most livable city in Idaho comes from the aspects of like white flight happening now to Idaho since Idaho is a predominantly um, white state by demographics? I, well, I have no evidence exactly of this, but you know, the whole California thing, you know, a lot of the people are leaving the liberal California or, you know, this is a generalization. Anyone can prove me wrong because they want to be in a more conservative place. So that's, you know, where some of, not all of them, of course, where some of that has happened. Cause it's, you know, California is, in a lot of ways more progressive and has led the way on, cer on certain things. And if, you know, they don't agree with that, then they want to move somewhere else. And so there, there is some of that, I think, you know, some of it is people wanting to escape uh, or leave bigger cities and bigger places and more crowds and that kind of thing. You know, there's so many factors I think that go into it. I came here for the job. So it's, you know, that was, that was my motivation, but I think that's a real, it's so hard to pinpoint and it, you have to look back so far and I will say as a, you know, a little bit of a side note, the whole Idaho, Iowa thing too, I have actually found something from the 1940s where someone mixed up Idaho and Iowa. So like there's, you know, this whole, suddenly people are learning that Idaho exists and are like, oh, there's mountains, there's trees, there's all this other stuff. It looks like a great, and getting con consistently, you know, one of the most bikeable cities, one of this and this and this and great place for young people and this and that. And, you know, I don't know, I take all of it with a grain of salt <laughs> too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, growth is good and bad and it's a lot of growing pains and I think only time will tell how it'll turn out. My, my short answer to that question about white flight is yes. I do think if I was a white person looking to be around more like-minded white people, Idaho is the place to be. I don't think that's a, a good or bad thing for that person to want that. Whatever floats your boat is great. I think that a lot of focus has always been placed on uh, being diverse. And in a place where it's 93% white, 1.1% Latinx, 0.9% Black, 1.7% Indigenous. It's very difficult to focus on diversity and race because we would have to force people to move here for it to be a diverse place. Because of that, because diversity cannot be forced, the things that can be forced and can be intentional are equity, inclusion, and justice. So I think, you know, if that cont continues to happen here at a faster pace, is this happening really slow, then we move about 18 steps back, and then we kind of move forward, and then it kind of goes back. Eventually, it might not just be a place for white flight. Um, somebody else mentioned that people come here for the jobs. Audrey, you're absolutely right. I think, uh, again, I didn't know about Idaho until my wife was recruited to work at Boise State. Um, I had no, I, I, I Google Idaho. And again, it matters where you Google Idaho from because the first thing that came up for me was Aryan Nation. So location, 
nothing came up for me. It said the city of trees. And then when I landed, all I saw was dirt. I'm like, well, that wasn't, <laughs> you know, accurate. But I know it's mountains here now. But, you know, it depends on where you're researching from. Because Aryan Nation, Coeur d'Alene was the first thing that came up. When I Googled Coeur d'Alene when I got here, it showed beautiful pictures. Mm-hmm. And say it had to, I had to go to like the third or fourth page on Google to learn about the Aryan Nation and to learn that Idaho has the most hate groups in America still. So, you know, these are white flight, yes. I, I don't think that, I think some people come here just for a conservative, because it's a conservative state. Um, but most conservative states usually come with a large predominance of, of white people. And then someone um, asked, can someone speak to creating supportive environments for the queer community and other minority groups, predominantly whites? Yes. So, um, there are things at Boise State. So the Gender Equity Center is a very, that's really one of the only groups I tend to work with at Boise State because they've been consistently inclusive. Um, to create something at Boise State is very, uh, because it's not a lot of things there. They do have a uh, multicultural student services center and a diversity center. I think they might all be in one, so don't, don't quote me on that, I always get confused. So there are groups there, there's the uh, uh, Black Student Union, there, there are different things there. And what is not there, you can create certain groups. Now, where the group has support is something different. Um, there are small groups that Boise State students have put, put together. Financial support is something different. And I think that will look even more different because of the legislature passing the uh, anti-affirmative action bill. Um, again, this is one of those bills where I think nobody decided to do the reading involved in the bill. A lot of people think anti-affirmative action has to, something to do with Black people getting jobs over white people. Realistically, uh, anti-affirmative action has historically helped more cisgender white women than any other group of people um, in Idaho. So with this anti-affirmative action bill, that's basically kind of saying you can show no preferences to special groups and state institutions, which would be something like Boise State. Um, a special group could be veterans, but I'm sure they won't be touched. So the, the bill, again, was to um, hurt marginalized groups. So I think with the, even though the intention was to hurt marginalized groups, it's hurting other groups that wasn't intended to hurt. So I think support like that will, from the school, like it won't be a school organization. I think it will be a little bit more difficult now than it was before because that bill goes into effect July 1. But students will be able to get together and do things without saying it's a Boise State specific group. So if you know somebody's interested, TCC is willing to help and provide space um, if necessary. I will say too, with the Gender Equity Center, it was only four or five years ago that it was known as the Women's Center. So it started as that, and then they changed to, uh, because it wasn't just about women anymore from when it first started that they, they wanted to do that. And I know we're running out of time, but I do wanna answer, jump to the other question if I can about, yeah, because I think it's such an interest, interesting one about the Boise, Boise atmosphere and the politicians. And I really want to go off this call and start researching that because I don't know the answer. And I think that's really interesting. You know, in, so in the 50s, 
it was, well, it would have been right after that. Frank Church was elected senator and he was a Democrat. Cecil Andrus was our last Democratic governor and his office ended in what, 95, his second two terms. And so it's, it was so much back then, it was less about partisanship. I mean, there was always some of that, but it, it was, it was a different, it was a different world. And now I want to go interview all those politicians to find out how that would have affected them. And because I don't know the answer. And I think it's a really good question because that then feeds into, it wasn't just about at that time, but, you know, going forward and what politicians influenced other politicians and into different ways. And yeah, please come research that because I want to know. <laughs> and I think that's another important note to pull away is history is still happening. There's always more to learn from history as well as context does matter. So while Boise might have been small in the time frame, like because it is small, events like that can have a larger impact on Boise history specifically, whereas on a national scale, it might not really have as much of an impact. Yeah, and I think it, yeah, the context, and I think that's really key because you know, Boise of Boise, those kinds of things were happening all across the country. So Boise is still part of the narrative. So you can look at it, just what happened in Boise and how people reacted and what happened. But it is important to look at the national and other places, you know, was it happening in Portland? Was it happening in other towns, Salt Lake City, you know, Seattle, other places around here? What did it look like in the Northwest? What did it look like in the West? What did it look like nationally? Because mm -hmm. that helped feed the conversation and understanding. Um, to get the comprehensive view. And we are unfortunately out of time, but I did want to say thank you to everyone that attended, but also both of you for taking time to uh, join us tonight and help with this conversation. Yes, thank you very much. Happy to be here and thank you to everyone who came. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having us.